this is Catherine O'Connell and welcome to Lawyer On Air. If you are looking for inspirational stories about women in law, then this is the podcast for you. Join me and my lawyer ladies as we enjoy a glass of wine after a hard day at work and talk about the world of women in law. It's my passion to share stories of amazing legal ladies who are working as in-house legal counsel, who have law firm roles, who are leading on boards and who are doing law differently. From time to time, I will also invite special guests on the show to share their insights on legal recruiting and tips for getting hired as a successful lawyer in Japan. I hope you will enjoy getting to know these amazing women who I am so proud to share a profession with. I'm glad you're here and I hope you enjoy the show. Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of the Lawyer On Air podcast. In this special guest episode, I share with you another diverse story from a person who is working in the legal recruitment industry in Japan. I'm Catherine, the host of the show, and I'm a lawyer based in Tokyo for more than 20 years, and I absolutely love helping unlock the wisdom of the stories that people never tell. What I've learned from my career in legal recruiting so far is to enjoy what I am doing. If I like an assignment or I like a client, it will generate so much better results for me that it extends into all aspects of my life. Those are the words of Arikis Kojabasis, who is my guest today on the Lawyer On Air podcast. He's been an established recruiter with the Page Group in Japan since 2020, building the legal and compliance recruitment team of Michael Page from scratch. And during his efforts, he has received regional top performer awards in 2021 and in 2022. Last time he was on the podcast was season three, episode eight in July 2022. So that's just on a year ago. So much has happened since then with the easing out of COVID and reopening of the doors into Japan. Since April 2023, Arikas has transitioned internally to Page Executive, the executive search arm of the group. And there he's assisting with the Japan launch and building new client relationships. You can check out his full bio in the show notes. Well, on this episode, Alikas shares how the legal hiring market has been for the first half of 2023 and what he sees as the future coming forward. And it includes what lawyers should have in their toolbox to be thinking about strategically as they manage their careers in law and beyond into the executive C-suite and board positions. He also shares how he believes recruiters are brand ambassadors, not only for the companies and law firms they work with, but also for candidates they represent. When you work with a recruiter, they're speaking on your behalf. And so it's important to share your brand with the recruiter so they understand your values and how you are able to contribute to the business and vice versa, what the company and the law firm stands for. You'll also hear his tips for being a successful lawyer in this market, and that includes having a clear focus and knowing your priorities. And I chip in a little bit here about having an open mind. Alikas also shares a couple of tips for women as they progress in their careers. I know what you're thinking. What's a man doing telling us about our careers? But essentially, his tips are based on being as confident as possible and advertising your success and certainly not underestimating the impression that this can leave on the people that you are speaking with. Being confident is a difficult thing for many people, especially for women. But Alikas gives two really good examples of how you can do this in your daily work. And even though at first blush, these two examples may land a little awkwardly in the moment, I really endorse these approaches and I believe they are absolutely the way that you can feel stronger bit by bit in building your confidence muscles. So I really love these examples because they're practical and so I recommend you give them a go and see what happens. And then he also shares the person he would most like to spend a day with, the alternative job he'd do if he wasn't a legal recruiter and the motivational speech he had heard recently about failure. Hmm, it's a good one. Let's get into it. 
Hi, Arikis, and welcome back to the show. Thank you. Nice to be here again. Great. And since our last recording, you've spent your free time going to many, many countries. Uh, you've also had a change, a little change in your role at your workplace. And so I wanted to bring you back in and talk a little bit. But before we get right into it, I remember last time I asked you that usual question, if we were meeting up in person, where would we be? And you told us about Bar Amber in Azerbaijan. You still go there? Yes, I still go there. Actually, I hadn't been for like a couple of months and I went last week. So the, the bar woman there, uh, of course, remembered me and she was like, where have you been all this time? But oh. uh, yeah, still very much enjoyed. <laughs> Did she remember you liked the siesta cocktail? Yes. Oh, she did. Very good service in Japan always, right? Fantastic. And I know you also mentioned last time the Iranian restaurant called Aladdin that kind of reminds you of your home food. Still going there as well quite often. All right. I'm going to ask you, do you have any new discoveries? Because I know that you love going and finding different gems in the neighborhood. If you have found something, could you tell us what it is? Yeah, so there is a, a very small um, Japanese-French uh, fusion restaurant in Nakamegro called Nuit. It's a um, very nice, maybe romantic atmosphere for, for a couple to go eat there, have some wine. So I think that's um, the place I've been this year that uh, has impressed me the most, probably. Mm, sounds great. Lovely. And I can imagine you there having a lovely time with a certain other person, which is fantastic. Well done. Well, we're going to go into the episode then. And last time when we had you on the podcast was actually a year ago on the 8th of July or around July 2022, episode eight in season three. And so much has happened there, right? We're now fully out of this COVID cloud that's been hanging over us and Japan, you know, has reopened to everybody, I believe. So tell me first up, what's the general feel on the ground now for legal hiring in Japan? Yeah, thank you for asking. Actually, the general results, I would say, show that um, the recruitment market has been a little bit slower in uh, the first half of uh, 2023. Mm. I think the main reason for that is some challenges that uh, we have seen mainly outside Japan and in certain industries like uh, finance uh, or like technology. However, my feeling is that it has slowly started uh, to pick up again, uh, considering that uh, there was a, an influx of new good positions uh, during June. So I hope that this trend continues and we have a much better second half of the year and a much more active second half of the year. I see. That's interesting. And it's good to hear that there's been an uptick in June. And June is a very busy time in Japan with lots of AGMs, shareholders meetings, etc. So the recruitment process, I know when we last talked, we were in the middle of COVID just coming, really just coming sort of out of it. And COVID did change a lot for Japan. It made some things a lot faster. In terms of the recruitment process in Japan, have any processes been streamlined or made even faster? Yes, uh, I think uh, you would see the two noticeable trends compared to last year. Firstly, companies have streamlined their processes to four or less interviews. So even if we're talking about a very senior position, they do try to keep it less than four. And also, even though we have seen a return of people to the office, the online interviews remained to be a major channel, something that we didn't really encounter much before COVID. Right. Those online interviews are quite useful, though, aren't they, to screen? You can get quite a lot of information, even from seeing somebody's top half of their body, their facial expressions, the way that they, you know, look at the camera or don't look at the camera. There can be quite a good indication from, from let's just say, just, and I'm doing inverted commas, just an online interview. Is that right? 
Yeah, that's correct. So firstly, you know, if the interview is not going well, it's it's a little bit faster to screen and see if the candidate is good or not without wasting each other's time. And secondly, sometimes it's also practical. So, you know, if if you've met a person two, three times, if they've come two, three times in the office and for the fourth time, maybe they cannot take a day off to come to the office again, just having an online interview is more efficient. Right. That makes absolute sense. So it doesn't have to be the first interview that's online. It could be one of those four that you mentioned. Right. And so the four interviews, are they are they including an interview with a recruitment person such as yourself? It depends on the seniority of the position. So if we are talking about uh, a very senior role. Uh, usually you would start either with a general counsel, a legal director, maybe a country manager if it's on the business side. And um, the HR interview would be more of a procedural get to know you uh, one. However, if we're talking about junior or mid-level positions, the HR slash recruitment interview is quite significant because uh, it, it falls on the internal recruiter to screen the resumes before they get uh, to, to the rest of the company. Ah, that makes a lot of sense. So what are you actually seeing then from your hiring managers who are searching for candidates? You know, what are they looking for, perhaps maybe from the law firm side and also from the in-house side? Yeah, so with the market getting a bit tighter, we have seen two distinct trends. For law firms, language capability and some sort of connection with Japan has become a significant priority. So they want to hire people who understand Japan, know how to communicate with domestic stakeholders and clients, and you know will not be a flight risk. In-house, the sentiment remains the same as, as last year. So soft skills and business skills is incredibly important. But there is also a little bit of an added focus uh, regarding industry experience. And the reason for that, it is a tighter market. So approvals from local and global headquarters are a little bit more difficult to obtain. So hiring managers need to present a very strong business case before being able to make an offer, which is why they have stricter screening criteria in terms of industry. It's so interesting what you say about the language, for example, on the law firm side. I remember when I first arrived in Japan, language, Japanese language, that is, was a nice to have. And then as the years went on, it became a really important tool and then it faded away again. So now I'm really interested to hear that language is critical and this Japan connection as well. When you say not a flight risk, that sounds to me like they want people to commit for a number of years. Yeah, that's that's correct. Uh, so, uh, you know, think about a firm investing uh, time and money to bring someone from overseas. Sometimes uh, there is uh, a package included uh, regarding their moving expenses. Sometimes uh, they will uh, take care of the visa. Uh, and uh, of course, when they come to Japan, they will educate on local culture, on, on local business uh, ethics. So all this uh, is an investment from the firm's perspective. And that's why they really want someone who would be committed. So, you know, Japan is a little bit of a unique country. I mean, very much different compared to what uh, some people may be used to in the West. So before a, a law firm making this investment, they want to ensure that it will have a good ROI. Absolutely. And on the in-house side, you're talking about industries. So I'm really interested to know what kinds of in industries now or sectors are hot. I know you mentioned uh, finance and tech are a little bit trickier, but what else is going on that's really quite hot and very popular uh, in Japan right now in terms of industries and sectors? It's been a very refreshing year in that respect, in the sense that we get to work on, on some new industries uh, that may not have been active in 2021, 2022. For example, consumer and retail businesses are very actively out there seeking people, both on the business side and on the legal side. In addition to that, uh, we have seen a lot of roles in the healthcare sector. And finally, and something that I'm very happy to see, we get a lot of roles in manufacturing and automotive, but here the focus of the roles is very specific. So a lot of automotive and manufacturing companies 
are looking towards increasing their environmental efficiency and um, achieving the car- the target of being uh, carbon net zero. So essentially, they are seeking lawyers who can assist uh, with this um, energy transition. It's something very exciting to see because there have been talks about helping top uh, the environmental change that we've been seeing over the past few years. So it's it's great to see some action towards that. Absolutely. And, you know, of course, I can't talk enough about the area of manufacturing and automotive. It's been my absolute place of adoration for all these years in Japan. And I love that sector. And I'm so glad to hear that it's actually becoming a bit more popular, especially, as you say, with this environmental aspect. And so are companies or law firms looking to people who have got the experience in that kind of, I suppose we could call sustainability or ESG, or are they also looking for people who have qualified, who've got some qualification in ESG? I ask you that because I've seen quite a few people flashing on LinkedIn, I've got this ESG certificate, or I've got this sustainability certificate, and I don't really know what that means i feel experience is always better that's my probably my bias but where are you on that what sort of things are you thinking about when it comes to experience and certification in these areas there's definitely a few courses that um, we've seen in a lot of resumes um, some provided by cambridge in england some by other famous universities around the world and these are definitely very helpful to have in your resume as you said, however, if you do have the experience, I think that's that's the biggest plus because you've shown that you can go out there and, and you can make the job done, you can do it. So in short, yes, it is very nice to have these certifications, but also if there is an opportunity for someone out there who's interested in ESG to just jump in an ESG project in their current company or or lead one or generate an idea of how the company can operate in a more environmentally friendly way, I think they should absolutely grasp it. And then, uh, you know, there's no better advertisement uh, compared to track record. Oh, I love that, right? Jump into a project that's an ESG project in your company, grasp it, because then you actually get the whole experience and you can probably be dealing, if you're in your company, dealing with outside counsel. So you'll get a whole lot of information on the way that these projects are run. I love that tip. Thank you so much for that. And looking to recruiters in Japan, it seems to be from what we last talked about, most people will use a recruiter in the market as their way of getting a position here, probably more than other countries. I think last time you you said around 80% or I said around 80% as the statistic that I had researched. What's it looking like now? Are you mostly seeing that people are looking to come to you uh, as their way of getting hired into the market? Yes, I think so. I think even with the market um, getting tighter in terms of, you know, fewer positions being out there, the Japanese local market still remains very small, very niche and very brand name centric. Uh, So there's very few bilingual candidates out there. Most of them are not on LinkedIn. Most of them have uh, a priority on uh, stability and uh, staying in a company with strong finances. So... In general, yes, we do see recruiters uh, being used quite a lot. The companies struggle sometimes, especially when they come from abroad to hire in Japan, because it's difficult to hire in Japan only based on salary or on other factors that may work elsewhere in um, Europe and Asia or America. So basically, they need someone who's going to tell a story on their behalf in order to attract people. So that's why usually they would need to use a recruiter. Ah, that's very interesting, right, to tell those peculiarities about the Japan market and that the companies or the hiring managers have to actually tell the story and prove, I suppose, to those strong finances uh, so that that person will want to stay in the company or the law firm. I get that completely. Just want to add to that as well, that because the market is so small, it's um, quite easy sometimes uh, for your brand name as a company to be polluted in a sense when too many recruiters uh, go out there and represent you to candidates. Um, So it's not just important to engage several agencies who are going to send CVs, but it's important to identify 
a recruiter who's going to associate essentially with your brand name as a business, know your business well and act as your brand ambassador, because that's the only way to ensure that the brand name of your business is strong in such a small market. And also you get the best candidates because we often get candidates who have been approached by multiple agencies asking, well, what's going on with this role? Why have I been approached by 10 recruiters for the same position? And sometimes this tends to leave a, a negative impression on them. Ah, that is a really good insight there. And it can also be flipped, can't it? That the person who is looking for a position, the candidate also goes to many different recruiters and their name is being shared multiple times. That's another excellent point. Uh, yes, that is true. It's the same advice for candidates. Um, and when I advise my friends or family about how to change jobs, I will always say, choose the one or two recruiters that you trust the most and pick with them because uh, it is a very similar story. You, you don't want your name to be all over the market. You don't want everyone to know that you're looking sometimes and you want to make sure that you're getting quality information from someone that you trust. Oh, I believe that absolutely. And you don't want to weaken or dilute your brand going out to many different places as well. So I think that's really good point from this talk so far is that being very careful on how you select who you're going to work with and navigate that and control it with boundaries really, really importantly with people you trust. So that's a great point, really great and point. Another, another addition on this is it also incentivizes us as agents to invest more time on you uh, as a job seeker or uh, to a client who's looking to hire. So definitely when I know I'm exclusively helping someone or when I know a client is engaging just with me, this means that um, there's a much greater incentive to, to allocate time and uh, put 110% of my focus in um, essentially rewarding them for, for the trust they've shown in me and showing that I appreciate by delivering a good result. Yeah, I think most people understand that at a theoretical level, but when it comes to looking for work here, you often have this fear of, I better ask a lot of people. I better get as many as I can because some people may not know the other opportunities that are there. So they spread their net a little bit too widely. It's very hard yes. to overcome that a feeling, Indeed. I think, as a person looking for a role, right? And also as the people who are searching for the candidates. Do you have any advice there? Or is it something that you do yourself that you tell people, look, you know, I can work better for you exclusively um, and it's incentive to me just if you stick with me, I'll look after you. How do you calm down some of that fear that people have that they're not seeing all the roles that they should be? Thanks, Catherine. And I think, yeah, what you just mentioned about some people realizing it, but theoretically only, I think that's hindsight. So many huh. times you, after you've spread the net a bit too wide, you'll be thinking, oh, maybe I could have kept it a bit tighter. Yeah, sometimes I'm, I am trying to explain this to candidates. Occasionally it's working, sometimes it's not. It's always part of the advice I give. That's perfect. It's really up to the person, isn't it? It's up to them to decide what they want to do. And I know this translates, and we're going to talk a little bit later about uh, C-suite and board hires as well. And it's exactly the same. If your name is submitted to various people who are doing executive search, it also dilutes your brand and you're better to stick with the one or perhaps two recruiters in that area. And we're going to get into that in a moment. But just first, let me ask for lawyers who are really just ready to go and find their next role, what do they need to have to be successful in this market right now? I think a clear focus and clear priorities um, is very important. So have a conversation early on before making any applications to understand the market. Um, then realize what kind of positions uh, you think may suit you and then uh, have a targeted focus on where you're applying because as the market gets, gets tighter, the questions about why are you applying to this position, why our company uh, have increased importance uh, compared to before. So being prepared, I think is a very key success factor right now. Oh, I love that too, like the clear focus. At the same time, I've got 
just came down and downloaded into my brain that we should also have an open mind because I remember one of my really great roles that I took on was a little step away from pure manufacturing into pharmaceutical and I'd never really considered it. And so while I was focused on what I thought I wanted, having that open mind and having a great recruiter who could explain your skills and your experience is actually transferable to another sector. Have you ever thought of it? And that was really important to me because I could slightly move sideways to do something different. So would you put open mind in that toolbox for success as well? Yes. If I if I were to add another sentence to my previous answer, it would be exactly what you said. I just tried to keep it a bit shorter. <laughs> <laughs> you've, you've read the book on how to do podcasts, so short answers are great. Okay, well, what else would be in that toolbox? Please elaborate again for a little bit more on what else we could put in there for success in the toolbox for Japan. We've got focus. We've got priorities. Thinking about positions that suit you and an open mind. Yeah, I think timing is also quite important in the sense that a good position for someone may not be available right now, but may come up in three, four, five months, one year. So having this patience before jumping onto the next role is um, quite important, especially if there's not something uh, rushing you. It may make a significant difference both in terms of uh, salary and the remuneration that someone may achieve, also in terms of uh, the job scope, the seniority, the management responsibilities they may have. So, you know, when when we present as recruiters a number of roles, the candidate does not feel that any of them suit. You know, they can um, simply explain that on us, pass on the opportunities, and uh, something better may come up in the future. So. The patience is a virtue because sometimes candidates jump onto the next position and then they're not really happy and look to move again after one year, which doesn't look great on a resume, especially no, in, uh, right. in here where things are a bit more conservative. You're absolutely right. And also that eagerness or the lack of patience comes across in your body language and the way that you speak when you're interviewing. You may think you cover it up, but it absolutely shows, I feel. Exactly. It does show. So I know that you at Michael Page recently completed a talent trends report for 2023, and it was called The Invisible Revolution. Uh, and it's based on comments from nearly 70,000 participants over 37 markets. And I think at least 20,000 or so were participants from Asia Pacific. I have to ask the first question here with the title of this report. What is The Invisible Revolution? Yeah, that's a, a report um, I think we are all very proud of because it's a global report. So it, it compares uh, a very vast amount of data, which um, is very interesting to also see differences between countries, differences between regions. But the common theme indeed was the invisible revolution, or some, some people also call it the visible revolution, because um, essentially it portrays a significant change in the modern workforce. So we have been seeing uh, since 2020, lower loyalty, higher turnover, and a deterioration of the emotional benefits of work. So what does this really mean? Essentially, it's more difficult to get employees engaged with your brand name. It's more difficult to build relationships between your brand and an employee and between employees with each other and employees with the managers. Some of the reasons of that are remote working. Some of the reasons of that may be generational differences. Essentially, it is much difficult uh, compared to before uh, to keep a low turnover and achieve uh, loyalty to, to your business. Ah, oh, very interesting. And did you find that across the board globally and in Asia Pacific or were there slight differences within this area? So it is a trend that has been going on across Asia Pacific and globally. There, there are small differences from, from country to country, but even in a country such as Japan, for instance, where we tend to see very high employment loyalty, the numbers were the lowest compared to ever before. Is that right? Yes. <laughs> wow, that is really interesting. What's the difference? Is it quite significant in the downturn of that loyalty factor? 
I think so. And I think especially with the younger generation that has never been in the office or maybe they've been in the office for a very short time, we do tend to see them much less engaged um, in uh, in their current employment compared to maybe some older generations uh, that have seen how business used to be. Right. If they've never been in the office and it's quite significant for all of us who worked in offices all our lives, we know what it's like. But if you've never worked there, what's the what's the importance of it? What's so good about being in the office? It can be very hard to get an idea about that. Exactly. Yeah. Many people are surprised when they're asked to go back to the office and many people immediately, the second they are asked, they will call up a recruiter and uh, see what else is out there that may be full remote. Although I do have to say the full remote opportunities are becoming less uh, as time passes. So it's a very interesting dynamic. Some businesses try to get ahead by offering full remote, but that can also backfire because it may lead you to hire a less loyal employee. So um, we'll see where this lands. But right now, it seems that the hybrid model is working best. Yeah. And this go back to the office. If you never worked in the office before, there's no real going back. It's actually starting in the office. So it's it's quite a big change to what you've been used to. And I think you're right with this sort of being very aware of the different people you've got in your workforce who are doing different stages of this work in the office, not work in the office and how they feel about it. It's really very, very delicate and important to be looking at. Yeah, and that's the beauty of the report and of be, of it being global because we've launched it um, with in-person events in um, several countries, uh, including Japan, including Southeast Asia, including Singapore. And in these events, we did um, invite a lot of uh, business leaders of multinational corporations. And the nice thing with the report is that it leads to conversations and every leader has their own opinion So that makes it even more intriguing. And uh, we are very keen to see how things go long term. Mm, I'm intrigued to know then what has come up with these conversations, if you're able to share just in general about what the CEOs or the hiring managers are saying about the trends that they've seen in the report specific to Japan. Yeah, of course. Uh, Three general themes that have come up. First of all, there are some leaders that they require employees to come to the office every day, and they think that's the best way to cultivate a strong culture and strong teamwork. Then there are other leaders who are the complete opposite, and they say they enjoy working from home themselves, so they don't see why the employees shouldn't have the same opportunity. There are some leaders who recognize that providing more work from home allowances can attract sometimes uh, good candidates. So they're using it from a strategic side in order to attract talent. And uh, then there are some leaders who mention they they do trust their employees to dedicate uh, their working hours in any way they like. Then there are additional uh, leaders uh, who essentially understand both sides. And I think these are the leaders who would be struggling the most because uh, they're trying to seek a fair balance uh, between the two, which can be very difficult uh, to achieve. Ah, that's really interesting. I love how you've brought those out. I wonder if there's anything that's similar to the ones that are wanting people to be in the office and the ones who are okay with being at home. Is there a kind of industry or type of business or a a Japan-centric company rather than a foreign company? Have you found any correlation between that? That's an excellent question. And I think, no, I have not been seeing that because I have seen startup companies where, uh, let's say, the Asian managing director is visiting Japan and it's encouraging people, you know, even though we are startup, we need to be in the office more, we need to build relations with each other. And then I've seen very large Japanese and foreign companies just leaving it up to the employees to decide what they want to do. I've seen both from both sides. So once someone may expect a startup to be more flexible, I don't think that would always be the case. And occasionally there are industries that are considered more traditional, but you would be surprised with the amount of flexibility that they provide. Ah, great. Thank you for correcting my assumptions. I'm glad to hear that. So can listeners get a copy of this report? I'm sure they're very interested having heard us speak about it. How do they get a copy? In the link below the notes. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for saying that. Yeah, so we will share a a link to allow people to go and get a copy of this trends report themselves. So. 
yes. they can also reach out to me and uh, I'm oh. very happy to of also course. provide them with some key uh, details from the report. Very good. That's a great, a great approach. And so from looking at the trends report, what do you see as just a general outlook? So not really specifically to law, but generally speaking as the future of work. Yeah, thanks for asking. So again, it is um, similar to what we were discussing earlier about recruiters really being brand ambassadors for companies that are looking to hire in Japan. That's something that really came up in conversations with uh, a lot of people mentioning that they are struggling to retain talent and some others others mentioning they're struggling to hire talent and find the right balance between work from home and uh, work in the office and so on. And the common answer that came up from both business leaders and uh, and some directors on our side was that employee engagement essentially starts from the very first interview. So once you hire someone, they should already be very excited about working for your company, very excited for your brand. And that's where the recruiter's role also is to, to be able to explain your brand in, in a very nice and efficient manner and uh, make sure that the candidate understands where they are applying. So on day one, they don't come in the job with questions and doubts, but they come in with excitement and uh, happiness. Yes. And you would, because you've got different clients, you would be slightly modifying your brand, obviously, each time you're talking about different companies. But yeah, I believe that's right. I love the way you've called it a brand ambassador because you are, you're representing the hiring company, the hiring law firm, for example. And so you need to be just like them and have the same understanding of the company uh, or the law firm so that you can actually be helping people to get excited about working for that place. Exactly. We are associated. So if uh, if I don't do my job well, uh, that's <laughs> going to have a negative reflection on the law firm that is engaging me. And similarly, if the candidate is not happy in the law firm or company they join, uh, that's also having a negative reflection on, on me who I recommended. So our fate is indeed very, very much connected and our interests very much aligned. Wow. Okay. Is there anything else that we've missed out here that you would like to add? Just a quick one. What I've seen in 2023 is also recruitment starting to get a bit more specialized in the sense that companies and law firms have identified a lot of the trends that we just talked about. And um, they've uh, started, uh, and instead of seeing agencies floating resumes to them from all over the world, they've started um, tidying up a little bit their recruitment operations and essentially looking into different kinds of engagements as well, which um, so far has been working well for many clients. First of all, because uh, it helps uh, the client get a more effective understanding of the market by a recruiter who does really deep research for them. And secondly, it closes a little bit the communication gap, considering that there is a lot of time being put into building the relationship with, uh, with your recruiter in Japan. Right. So what does different kind of engagements mean? Because I'm sort of used to, I guess, old school recruitment in Japan, where it's, you may be doing a retained search, just looking after that one company, they only hire you, or it may be that they're looking at different companies or and different recruitment people to help them, or different methods altogether. So what does that mean? Is there some other different method that's emerging? We, we have seen um, a lot more retainers uh, coming in in the past few years, uh, but it's not just the retainer as a recruitment method, but it's the detail that goes into that. So essentially uh, providing a, a full market map of available candidates in the market, then choosing carefully who to approach, because you also said everyone is unique, change the pitch for each candidate. There is much more detail uh, getting into this effort compared to before where the retainer used to be commencement fee, then a short list of three, four people, and then trying to place the job with this. There is a, a lot more detail getting into the data we provide. There's a lot of companies who look into different factors as well, such as ensuring a diverse um, long list and a diverse short list. So 
all these are things that uh, we are looking at when we're having, I would say, more exclusive engagement with clients. So it, it's less of just floating one CV down there and hoping they get hired. And it's a much more concise and detailed effort. Right. Very much more strategic. And I can hear that it seems to me like it's more boutique curated and you're giving a lot more value not that you didn't before, but it's even a different kind of value to before in the way that you bring candidates to people to consider. It really is, interesting. Mm. It is definitely more boutique curated, but at the same time, and that's a bit of, of a personal one, I have found that being backed by a strong brand really helps in the sense that uh, you know, you can get really good guidance in terms of uh, DNI trainings, in terms of marketing materials, and these are things that these days clients are looking into. So when when they choose which recruitment agency to engage, they do want to ensure that uh, this uh, recruitment agency has uh, its own DNI initiatives essentially sorted, and it's uh, it's going to be a good ambassador for their business. Mm, that makes perfect sense. All right. So we're going to jump into the hiring at a C-suite and board level. But just before that, I'm going to ask you, if you don't mind, the question I've been asking recently in season five and six of the podcast, a question you may have heard if you've been listening. Uh, I've been asking a lot of the lawyers who've come on what they have learned so far in their career. So I'm going to ask you a similar question. Are you are you up for it? Yeah. <laughs> so what have you learned so far in your career in legal recruiting or in recruiting in general so far? My biggest lesson from my relatively short career of it's it's only been 4 years has been um, to enjoy what I'm doing. So Usually when I like the assignment or the client or the candidate that, that I'm working with tends to, to generate much better results. So I've tried to focus on um, building stronger connections with clients and candidates that I have very good communication with that has um, a very positive uh, extension to, to all aspects of life. Of course, in some cases, there there will always be up and downs, but um, essentially uh, learning how to manage this uh, from a mental perspective is is quite important. So I think that's, that's the biggest lesson. In the beginning, I thought uh, I can do everything and dedicate loads of hours and, and be really good. But now I've found that it's much more about enjoying what I do rather than um, spending loads of hours doing it. Great. I love it. Really love that. I mean, it's about enjoying things. You're going to spend most of your days in this work, so why not enjoy it? And then, as you said, it just has an ongoing ripple effect to all aspects of your life. Perfect yeah. answer. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> all right, let's move on then to this exciting new area that you're working in, and that is hiring for that C-suite board level. Uh, in April this year, I think you transitioned uh, internally to also be supporting page executive, the executive search arm of your group. And I know that your bread and butter is still working where you are now in legal and compliance recruitment, but this is another new arrow in your bundle, right? That you can put on your bow and shoot out into the market, another different aspect that you're offering. Uh, so you're also helping with the Japan launch and building the new strategic client relationships with all kinds of board members and Japan board members, right? So globally and both domestically. Tell me more about this brand. We've talked a lot about branding today. Tell me about this brand and why it came about and maybe some more details so that people can understand how they can work with you under this new brand that you've got. Yes, thank you. It's something very exciting uh, for me personally, because uh, it increases vastly the scope uh, under which I can work. So um, it, it gives much more flexibility in terms of uh, the 
the functions of the positions that I'm assisting in terms of the seniority of the positions that I'm assisting. And um, also Page Executive as a brand has a very strong global network. So for instance, many times when uh, clients in Japan ask for uh, positions abroad, I know my counterparts really well. There's a very strong synergy uh, between each other. Essentially to introduce Page Executive, uh, it's um, the executive search team of the page group brand and it has been present in southeast asia for several years now it's in the top one percent of uh, executive recruitment brands in the united states and uh, we've launched it here in japan in april 2023 and essentially we are trying to focus on much more tailored recruitment for for our clients and and build strong relationships where we act more as um, business partners and not as transactional as uh, as before. I think when we first talked about this, you mentioned the hiring through different stages or seasons of someone's life. So they may start with the company at one stage of their career, but the idea is that they would eventually be in the C-suite or on the board. And so you're hiring for a longer term, right, through their sort of career of growing into that top role. Yeah, exactly. So we've noticed the two main trends, I think, which encouraged us uh, to enter this market. So there's a few well-known firms that typically specialize in the C-suite area. And We've been hearing from a few of our clients that uh, they, they would love something new. They would love something exciting that, that will come in and disrupt the market. And we think we've, we've got exactly that. We do have the excitement. We do have the energy, uh, the passion to, to just put in the working hours and uh, put in the effort required to disrupt the C-suite market. And secondly, we also do have the know-how and the candidate pool to do that because Michael Page has been a brand which has been existing in Japan for over 20 years now. It has been existing globally for about half a century. So people that used to be mid-level, let's say in 2000, 2005 and 2010, now have been promoted to to C-suite positions. And uh, these are people we know well, and we've been in touch with them, helping them build their career over the years. So it's very exciting now to be able to help them with uh, more senior level level roles and more senior level information as well. Yeah, that goes back to that original uh, conversation we had on the first episode with you was building that relationship. And this is exactly where it's coming in. You can see that it's part of the life cycle of your career, that you've got people that you knew back then, and then suddenly they're in a higher role in uh, C-suite or board roles. Uh, Board roles obviously can be non-executive directors as well as the CEO, CFO, etc. So it's really interesting aspect that you're calling out on. And maybe the other brands don't really have that longevity in the market to call on those people that they knew from way back then. Certainly, I know people in your company who I've known since, I would say, 2010 onwards. And here we are, 2023, uh, and we're still in touch. And and my career has taken a different turns and ups and downs and roundabouts to get where I am now. So I love that story that you're telling on that. Exactly. And I would say it's also very efficient on, on the client side as well, because, you know, being in touch with these people, very often they also do have their own hiring needs. Essentially, as one business, as page group, we, we can support every side of recruitment. We can support by providing market information directly, and we can also support by connecting them to the Michael Page brand and ensuring that that my colleagues in, in Michael Page follow up and provide the level of service they're looking from a client perspective as well. So yeah, essentially there is a lot of synergy going on and, and that's what makes me very excited. It's uh, um, a great opportunity to, to build good connections and really be able to help out there in a much more flexible way than, than I was before. Perfect. And how are you seeing this current market for C-suite hires, local and global? For example, what are you seeing the boards are searching for in terms of diversity on the board? Or again, too, another question on that is the opportunities there are for lawyers to get on board specifically. 
Thanks. Yeah. So essentially, it's three questions divided. It's three by, questions. It's it three is. questions in one. Yeah. Right. I'm doing. So, I'm not following the book on podcasting. <laughs> I should be asking you one question each. But yes, three and one for this particular one. It's okay. I'll break it. Uh, I'll break it for you. So the Japanese uh, brands, um, which have global presence, are looking very much to diversify. We've all seen uh, certain requirements around uh, women on boards. And uh, there's also an effort that, to diversify in terms of internationalization as well. So many times they bring over international board members, uh, engage them, and um, they ask from them to create a more efficient global structure. So for international companies who have presence in Japan, they are looking usually for a country manager who will be bicultural. So someone who will understand both Japan and uh, the Western culture. And uh, the reason for that is they want to close a little bit the gap of communication that exists between the Japan business and uh, the global HQ. So typically someone who has exposure in both cultures would be the perfect fit uh, for a CEO or for a board position. So for the third part of the question, yes, there is a position for lawyers on the boards as well. And just the other day, uh, I was speaking actually with two different lawyers who have been offered C-level positions uh, in their boards, which don't have much to do with legal, but have more to do about managing the business. And I think lawyers can contribute quite a lot in the C-suite. And the reason is they have exposure from very early stage in their career in terms of helping with strategic transactions from a legal perspective. Very often they have more direct access to the CEO and to other board members compared uh, to some other functions. So this helps them build an understanding of, of how business works from very early in their in-house careers. So when they reach a certain level of seniority, uh, I think uh, definitely with the right training and um, with uh, with the right career plan, they can uh, absolutely make it to a very strong C-level uh, role. Mm, very interesting. I think you, you can definitely, you, you probably know how to do that. So you may have insights for that. Very interesting. Yeah. And I'm just, you're seeing that with both people who are lawyers working in law firms who've been on secondment maybe, or had in-house work in their career or those who have worked mostly in-house, no difference there with the strategic transactions and the access to board members. Are you seeing that across the board for different kinds of lawyers? Yes, definitely across the board. So there have been people who left their law firms uh, as partners and they went and became in-house general counsels. There have been people who left their law firms as associate or counsels and they also achieved very senior positions on the way to be in the C-suite, in the C-suite. We've also seen people who've left law firms and become businessmen and opened their own businesses. So, of course, we do see it from the law firm side. And definitely, we also see it from the in-house side where there is a much more defined career path uh, towards making it to the board. Perfect. Is there anything else you'd like to add here? Not really. Uh, I don't know if you have something to add here. Is there anything you'd like to ask me about this area of work on boards? Yes, I do want to ask you, I mean, you've been quite successful yourself uh, into making in, in different board positions. So I guess, what would your advice uh, be to candidates, recruiters, clients? Uh, what's your experience has been so far? I would say the most important thing is not only the fact that you're a lawyer and have got experience working in law, it's how you work with people. That's really the critical factor. And especially if it's coming to a domestic client, a domestic Japanese company, but not necessarily just Japan. It's the way that you view them. And I've been quoted in interviews with this, I guess I'll call it as an accolade now or a, a compliment that I don't look down on Japanese companies. And I think that's really important is that it's very often to pull apart the negative aspects of Japanese companies. They're lacking in diversity or Japan's 125 on the World Economic Forum's list, right, for diversity. Yes, there's troubles and difficulties there, but the way that you deal daily with your clients, your customers, your colleagues, 
in a Japanese company, for example, if you really want to be a master and get to the top of your game, being on really top boards is to the way that you interact with the company and genuinely working with them to help them, to guide them, but not tell them what to do. And I think that can be a big mistake. As lawyers, we often advise and tell people how they should do things, how they should run their transactions but when you're on the board it's very much about people 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 and how you interact with them and i would say that has been key to me attaining these particularly these two top company roles but also uh, my third role that i have so i have three board roles now uh, and they're all about the people and it gets around the community how you interact with people and so it's very clear to me that that's the key driver And I think when recruiters are looking for people, it's not only about those aspects, it's most definitely about the so-called soft skills and to be concentrating on how that person interacts. And when you introduce a candidate, don't only introduce them just from their CV, introduce them from their human CV, what kind of person they are like and give examples of how they are going to be a great personality and a supporter and on the team with the people who are around the board already. And I think you're making an excellent point. And actually, we do need people like yourself or other successful uh, women lawyers to come in on these boards in order to improve Japan's position on that index and in order to improve working conditions in companies here, in order to to raise efficiency because people like yourself and and a lot of others that I know out there can bring uh, fresh ideas in these boards and can definitely help from their perspective uh, to run um, a more diverse and a more efficient operation. You're also raising a very interesting point about soft skills. And I'll ask one more question here. So definitely as a recruiter, we, we can pick up the phone and explain the personality of our candidate to our clients. But also as a candidate yourself, I mean, how would you include the soft skills in a resume? Oh, I probably wouldn't include it in a resume. I would include it in the way that I convey that to people verbally. So I wouldn't really put it in a resume. How do you convey that? You convey it by being yourself and showing it and giving examples of how you've worked with people in the past to have those communication skills, to be someone who's empathetic, how you've helped somebody, how you've got a company or a business through a very difficult ethical situation, and perhaps even something that didn't help, hypothetically how you may help, but it really just helps with being able to convey it. It's not on a paper thing. It's really just not on paper. It's about the way that you display it verbally and show it through body language. It's hard to describe, But I think as a recruitment firm, if you're talking about somebody, you need to talk about the personality you've seen in front of you when you've talked to them, the way that they talk about other people, the way that they describe other companies they worked for. All of those give you indications as to whether they're an empathetic person, they communicate well, they talk highly of everybody uh, or not. Sometimes talking great about everybody is also a trigger to uh, a red flag, right? (laughs) So those things I don't think you can put on paper, but they are things that you can express when you're talking with someone and perhaps you write it in part of the the top of the email about this particular person. Companies know, firms know they're going to get someone who's a good lawyer, who's going to execute and do all the technical stuff. But how are they going to be to be working with them around the table on really critical decisions in the future? And how are they going to be the ones who stand up and tell somebody that that's ethically not right? or that governance is being bent and they need to be able to tell people how they're going to do that, right? What kind of person are they that will be able to do that in a very authentic and authoritative, but very kind and empathetic way as well? Indeed. And I think the the number one I would highlight from your answer as you mentioned it, is is the example space is very important. And it doesn't need to be many examples, just let's say the highlight example of, of your career. And the reason is that an example really helps demonstrate these skills, these abilities, and also demonstrate your values. And as we said, track record is, is quite important. So an example of something really great uh, someone has done or someone can provide is incomparable to anything else. So, of course, uh, 
it's a recruiter's jobs to have the passion and demonstrate the eagerness of the candidate and their good personality. But an example is a very objective thing. It's it's not subjective at all. It's it's something that has happened. It's it's a story. It's it's down there. So it's something that really helps us from our side to back up all the other verbal statements that we are making. And you're going to be asked those in your interviews. So you really need to have them prepared and have them genuine. You know, think back in your career where you have genuinely helped people through a very difficult ethical or compliance situation. And you know that that's going to be relevant for when it comes up around the board. And usually it's something that's it's going to be needed to be decided on and debated very quickly in order to get to a good result or a proper way of explaining to the press or going out there and making the changes that have caused the thing that happened. So what are you going to do in that situation? How would you behave? And how have you done that before? And if you haven't done that before, be honest about it. You know, I haven't done that, but these are the things that I think would be relevant. And when I did this over here, it, it's similar, it's not the same, but I'd probably apply that kind of experience to that particular situation. Really think about it before you interview with your recruiter and also with the people who are around the board who will be online or in person with you asking many of these kinds of questions. Absolutely, Catherine. And I think that's important also for junior and mid-level roles as well. So uh, a strong example can really set you aside from the crowd and it's important to have it prepared and to make sure that this example relates to the company's values that you are interviewing with. Thank you. And really, you love those questions. I appreciate that you asked me a couple of questions. So as we wind up today, I wonder if there's any particular advice that you would have for women who want to progress their careers. Yes, thank you for asking. So we are lucky in Japan in the sense that there's a lot of uh, successful women on the legal side. Of course, however, there's a lot of work to be done in other functions and also to ensure that there is um, a strong path for women to, to achieve very senior roles. I guess my biggest advice, um, well, it's a little bit difficult to give coming from my perspective, but what I would say is try to be as confident as possible and and advertise your success in the sense that uh, there's a lot of men out there who are advertising what they do. There is a lot of people generally in there who advertise what they do. And it cannot be underestimated how much of an impression that leaves. Sometimes uh, we do tend to undervalue ourselves. So I guess my advice to all people would be do not do that and uh, show your uh, you, your good job when, when you do your job well. That's very important. How do they do that? How do you be confident and advertise your success? And I, I know that we shouldn't underestimate ourselves, but how do you actually say that? What would be an example of someone showing their confidence and advertising? Would they just state that factually? How would they do that in your way? How have you seen women do that, come across as confident as possible and advertise their success? Yeah, so it's a little bit difficult for me to give um, from a male perspective because, of course, I, I don't know exactly how things are and how women may feel from their side. But um, I, I've noticed from, from people close to me, including friends, including my fiance, that there tends to be certain shyness or sometimes maybe a man tries to overshadow what they achieve. And I'd say there is a lot of channels that, that someone can can advertise what they've done, such as a, a quick Teams message, for example, when, when they think they've done something really well and sharing the best practice um, or a, a quick mention to, to their manager about uh, a day that they're satisfied with what they got done or just sharing with friends, essentially sharing with other people uh, makes you feel a little bit stronger, makes you feel a little bit happier. There is an old saying which says that um, when you share your happiness is multiplied and when you share your sadness is divided. So in short, yeah, don't shy away from sharing. Yeah, I think that's right. And why would you not say on a team's message, you know, this went really well and what worked for us was these three things. It's a matter of just doing it. Why not? I mean, it's factual, right? It's not blowing your trumpet, as they say. It's it's being very healthy in the way that you do that or sharing a message with your manager. I exactly. think a manager who gets that message would love to hear that. 
and to look from another perspective as well, it's kind of our responsibility to be sharing uh, success stories. I agree with you. It's our responsibility to share success stories. That's that's it in a nutshell. Very good. Thank you so much. I have a couple of other questions I could ask you, but I'm going to leave them for next time I see you because they're a bit more personal. Um, okay. Some things that are very interesting that have come up in the last a couple of weeks since I got my board role, and I'd be interested to hear uh, the latest board role, I should say. And I should say to you, um, it'd be interesting to receive your advice, and we can explore that in another another episode. Let me just ask you one last question, which is from the fun part of the questions that I normally ask other women who come onto the show. If you were not being what you are now, a recruiter, what do you think you would be doing? That's an excellent question. I've been thinking about that quite a lot. Um, it's just maybe... a dream. It's not It's not saying that's what you're going to do. It's just what would come up for you as something else that you might like to do? Well, I didn't have a clear dream growing up, so it's a bit difficult to answer. So I'll just say what I could do. I think anything involving sales or generally building personal relationships. Maybe if I was a lawyer, I would be a litigator. <laughs> something, uh, something that involves... Uh, debating or sales oh. uh, that that would excite me very nice wow that's amazing and if you were given the opportunity to spend a day with anyone who would that be and why maybe it's someone famous not necessarily so i would spend it with yanis adetokumbo i don't know if people heard of yanis he's um, a basketball player in the milwaukee bucks he's basically one of the best players in the world um in the nba and the reason is that he's someone who comes from a very humble background. His parents were immigrants in Japan and in, sorry, his parents were immigrants in Greece. And uh, he hadn't been recognized as a Greek national, I think, until he was 17 or 18 years old or so. And back then he grew up in a, in a very poor environment. No one really knowed him. He's come on and he's become one of the best basketball players and one of the richest people in uh, in terms of athletes in the world. But what's really impressive about him is the dedication and the hunger to keep achieving his targets. Also, his positivity. He gave an incredible speech on failure just two, three months ago when his team failed to win the championship, where he said he didn't view defeat as failure, but he just viewed it as a step of the process of achieving success. And he's incredibly humble as well. So even though he started from very poor beginnings and now he's undeniably one of the best, um, he hasn't changed a bit. And I really admire that. Mm, that is so good. I'm going to go and listen to that speech. And it's, it's so true that failure is part of success. Some people will say to you, what is the opposite of success? And often the answer is failure, but it's actually fear. Let's let's put a, a link of the speech down in the description. It's, yeah, uh, let's do that. One. Because I think the opposite of success is fear and that failure is very much part of success. So let's put a link in the show notes, as we will with your own bio. Uh, we will be putting that into the show notes. We will also put the links to the report. And I guess your LinkedIn link would be good to put in there too, to, so that people can get hold of you and learn more from you after hearing today. Absolutely. Yes. Fantastic. And, and people have been listening to this. I'd be surprised if you're not inspired and have not learned something. If you have, please do let us know. Leave a review on our website. Leave a review on Apple or on Spotify or whatever player you're using. And do go ahead and share this episode with someone you also think will be very much inspired to come and work in Japan and live the life of a lawyer extraordinaire. That's all for today. See you on the next episode. Cheers. Come pie and bye for now. Thank you so much for listening today to this episode of Lawyer On Air. I really hope that you were inspired by the story you heard and that you discovered something new about women in the law. Please subscribe to the show so that you don't miss future episodes. And if you can think of even just one person to share this episode with, that would make my day. I invite you to connect with me to talk more. Jump on over to LinkedIn or Instagram where you can find me or send me a message via my website contact page. 
That's all from me today. I look forward to seeing you right here on the next episode of Lawyer On Air. Cheers, come pie, and bye for now.